0: Hi, I'm Stephanie Lemick. Welcome to Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. I am more than thrilled to have an amazing guest joining us today, Catherine Manning. Uh, To say I'm kind of fangirling is is an understatement. Um, Catherine is an amazing leader in the trauma-informed workplace space um, and has a ton of experience. I will I will let her introduce herself and tell you more about her experience and the work she does. But just thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Stephanie, and it's really such a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, Just to let your listeners know a little bit about me, I am a lawyer who, for most of my career, has worked with crime victims. I started off doing hotline work, domestic violence, rape crisis hotlines. Um, After law school, I went to the Justice Department for about 15 years, where I was a senior attorney advisor on victims' rights which meant that I advised on victim issues and cases ranging from huge fraud cases to terrorism, human trafficking, child exploitation, kind of the gamut. One of the things that I started to realize was that people didn't need different things based on what they were a victim of. Like if you were a victim of human trafficking, you didn't need wildly different things than a victim of identity theft. Everybody needed to feel heard and acknowledged. Everybody needed some help to recover from the impact of the crime. And then I started to realize it wasn't just the victims who needed those things. It was my colleagues too. (sighs) sometimes because of things that were work related difficult cases for instance but also just because they were human and we have challenges sometimes you know people were going through divorce or loss of loved ones lots of different challenges and I realized that those skills I had gained in supporting crime victims were really useful in the workplace as well with my colleagues and it just kind of brought home to me that When we are struggling, um, we all could use a little bit of help. And really in about 2018, as Me Too was happening, and I was starting to see the broader implications of this, I started working on a book. Um, The book came out in 2021, right? (laughs) You know, it was like I wrote it um, before COVID and everything. But in the way of publishing, it took a couple of years for it to come out. So by the time the book came out, we had had... COVID and George Floyd and just so many challenges in the world today. So the book is called The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. And it, it aims to help people better navigate conversations in the workplace with colleagues or employees or clients, customers, community members, who are possibly experiencing trauma or distress. Like how do you have that conversation in a way that is productive and compassionate and supportive while also taking care of yourself and making sure that you're not subjecting yourself to secondary trauma and compassion fatigue.
0: Amazing. I am a huge fan of the book. I actually have it right next to me. It's never far. It's never far from my desk. (laughs) Um, And I've read a ton of management leadership workplace books and a lot of a lot of books about trauma and i would say your book is the most accessible and i think it's the most applicable for leaders and hr professionals so if someone is looking for a book they can pick up spend a few hours with and then go and take that right to their jobs this is absolutely it so to say I'm a fan of your book, is is putting it mildly, but truly could not endorse the work more.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It is so wonderful to hear that because that was really my goal was, I know that this is kind of a hard topic and it's something that sometimes people feel a little uncomfortable with. Like, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I'm not, you know, trained. I'm not a hotline counselor, right? I don't know how to have these conversations, but the reality is we have no idea who's going to be on the receiving end of that, you know, disclosure, whether it's something like, Hey, I just need you to know that I'm uh, just found out my brother has cancer. I'm going to need to take a week off. Like, how do you, how do you have that conversation? If you're a colleague, if you're, um, if this is your employee, one of your team members, you want to make sure that you're showing up for that person in a way that is thoughtful and caring and where you don't say things that later you feel really bad about. You feel like you messed up. Yeah, that was that was definitely my goal was to make it really accessible and an easy read, a quick read and instantly applicable, like give you tips that you could apply right away.
0: Yeah. And for me, you know, spending, you know, 16 years in HR, what I love too was I saw how I used the laser method in my work, but it was so great to like have something to verbalize and to kind of show people, hey, this is how you do this without going oh, You'll figure it out. These are those moments where it's nice to actually have that skill set in your back pocket versus, you know, figuring it out on someone who's having a really tough moment in their career or their life. So I'll make sure it is in the podcast notes, but definitely go check out Catherine's book if you have not read it yet. And if you have read it, you know, give it to someone as a holiday gift. Um, <laughs> one thing you and I have talked about, and it's, I love, we we share this priority, is that there are so many different understandings of what trauma means or, you know, what trauma is. And you kind of get all sorts of different reactions when you use the word trauma. So I always love to start from a place of a shared definition. So I'd love to hear from you, you know, when you're working with clients, you know, when you're partnering with others, what's your definition that you use to make sure everyone's on the same page when we're talking about trauma?
1: It's so true, isn't it? People all have very different um, expectations in their mind about what counts as trauma. There are some people who basically it's you're if you're not a sexual assault survivor or a combat veteran, like you have not experienced trauma. Um, I use a definition in my work that is, again, very practical. Um try to make it easy to remember. Um, And it is kind of a slimmed down version of the SAMHSA definition, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Association definition. The definition of trauma I use is that it's a psychological injury that affects your performance. What I like about the SAMHSA definition is that in contrast to a lot of others, it doesn't give you a list of life experiences and say, if you've experienced one of these, you've experienced trauma because the reality is we're all very different in our reactions to some or even the exact same event. So I don't want to come in with an expectation of, oh, I know what you've gone through. Therefore, I know what you need or um, what you don't need, you know, like, oh, this shouldn't count as trauma. Instead, let's just focus on the person in front of us and see if they need help. And if they do, let's get them some help. And that's really the second half of it that affects performance, because we're talking about workplaces here. And so, We don't need to be going into our colleagues offices and quizzing them about their childhood experiences. It's just, is there something going on that is keeping you from being able to perform at the levels that you need and want to? And if so, let's get you some help.
0: I love that definition because I think it hits on so much. I sometimes say, you know, traumatic experiences are like snowflakes. Like each one is different and folks have different reactions to the same event. Um, I mean, I hate using this as an example, but it's just such a poignant one that we're all familiar with. I mean, you look at the COVID-19 pandemic, shared experience, shared traumatic event, and we all had such wildly different experiences in the same thing. So to me, that's sometimes how I like to frame it as well. And your definition hits on something that is like a hot button of mine too, and it's that we don't need to know the details of someone's traumatic experience. We don't need to go, you know, hey, you owe me your story so I can work with you better. I think that it can be sometimes very disempowering for someone to feel forced into sharing their traumatic experiences. It should always be the choice of that survivor, how, when, where, how much they want to share and with who. So I'm always really focused, you know, when I'm talking with leaders or talking about workplace and trauma, trauma trauma-informed workplaces aren't about diagnosing trauma. They're not about treating trauma. They're about providing that support to aid in performance. So I love, love that approach. I love that definition.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I completely agree with you, Stephanie. It's so important that We allow people choice and autonomy in sharing. If, um, you know, one of the things I think that is so hard when we're going through a difficult time in our lives is it feels like things are out of our control. Um, that loss of control, and my work with crime victims, I saw that again and again that that loss of control was a big contributing factor to how difficult that experience was. You know, I I was doing everything right, and yet I was victimized in this way. It was really difficult, and it makes us feel out of control of our lives. And so, one of the things I think is so important um, in working with people in trauma is trying to give them back as much autonomy as possible. Like, we are not going to act upon you. We we're not going to force you to do things. We are going to give you options and allow you to decide what is the right path for you. And so in terms of, you know, these conversations and the laser technique, which I'm sure we'll get into in a second, um, it's not like you your responsibility to get somebody's story from them. It is, I am here and I'm willing to listen if you want to share. And it, uh, the extent how you share it, all of that is completely up to you. It's just letting people know that they are permitted if they want to. Well,
0: let's, let's talk more about the book. Let's talk about the empathetic workplace. You know, how, how did you land on this concept? And, you know, what inspired you to write the book?
1: <laughs> you know, what actually inspired me, the real answer is Me Too, but in a negative way. Me Too, <laughs> I, when Me Too happened in 2018, I was on the one hand thrilled because I thought these are such important issues and I'm so glad that people are having these conversations, but also I was frustrated by me too, because I felt like me too put so much on survivors. You got to share your story. Everybody needs to hear your story. I'm sure this was happening to you too. I was getting texts from friends who were like, it's, you know, do I have to tell my story? I've never told anybody before. And, but if I don't, I feel like I'm letting down the side. (laughs) And like you, I was like, no, you do not owe your story to anybody. I felt like me too really, it it did a really good job of opening up the conversation, but it didn't, um, I just felt like it put too much on survivors. Like you have to share your story without an understanding that when somebody shares their story with you, you have an obligation to listen in a certain way and provide support. And I also knew because I had been doing this work in the criminal system for so long, I knew that you could conduct a full, thorough, fair investigation in a way that was still supportive of the survivors who were sharing their stories. It didn't mean you had to just take at face value everything that everybody said, which I think was often the pushback, like, well, but, you know, because, you know, there's that idea of, well, you have to believe survivors. You have to, sure, like let them tell their story, but you are still obviously as an HR person, you know this, you have to, you still have to conduct an investigation, but you can do it in a trauma informed way. Um, And one of the things I saw in this time period was that a lot of us struggle to respond correctly appropriately when somebody shares their story. Usually we just want to shut down the conversation as quickly as possible, right? You know, somebody comes in and you can tell they're upset and you just think, "Oh my goodness, how do I get out of this situation?" I remember when I was at the law firm right after I graduated law school, I worked at a big law firm and I remember there was one day where everything just seemed to come collapsing in on me, you know, it was like every case was exploding at the same time. And I was supposed to have a meeting with this partner who was a very nice man, but not super deft at handling difficult situations like that, emotionally challenging situations. And I came in and I just burst into tears and he like you could just see his eyes opened wide he he just had this look of terror and then he started to reach out and touch my arm like comforting and then he pulled it back like it was a hot stove because clearly he remembered something about you're not supposed to touch people (laughs) and then he just went on with the meeting as if I weren't crying (laughs) So I've got these tears streaming down my face and we're just pretending that's not happening. That is honestly how a lot of people feel like, you know, if I acknowledge it, does it make it worse? Am I going to be kind of violating their privacy? Am I going to be, you know, asking something of them that they don't want to share? And so often the response is, I just want to pretend this isn't happening or just get through it as quickly as possible. But the problem is when we do that, we don't actually make it better. I mean... (laughs) You know, I, if what I was dealing with that day was not that big a deal and I was fine and I had lots of other places to go for support. But, you know, that was sort of a missed opportunity because I know that if he had instead been like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Are you okay? Take a minute, just breathe. I would have felt so much better, so much more able to participate in this meeting that we were trying to have. And I would have um, really built, built a stronger relationship of trust with him. You know, I would have known that this is somebody... Who really cares about me and wants to be supportive. So that's part of why I I thought it would be helpful for people to have a bit of a roadmap to follow. I know that it can be difficult in those moments. Frankly, even still for me, um, sometimes people will disclose things where I just feel like, oh my gosh, I feel like I've been punched in the stomach. And it takes me a second to kind of pull my head together and and show up in the way that the person needs me to, it's helpful to have um, a map to follow in those moments. It can be really hard,
0: even with a lot of experience. I mean, you know, certainly different types of work, but the similar vein of, you know, people are sharing things with you that are often heart-wrenching or very traumatic or really difficult for them to find that place to be open about it. And finding that space to have the conversation, have it well, do it well, those tools not only help the individual, they also help you. And how you can find your own boundaries, your own space to kind of deal with what you're hearing. And, you know, comes up, you know, sometimes thinking about secondary or vicarious trauma as well. You like we we must be secret best friends. We're just finding out, Catherine. Um, so I struggled with the Me Too movement too because of the very thing you mentioned. And I think you you frame it so well that so much of the work was put on survivors. And a lot of the reason why I'm very, you know, open and effusive about, hey, we never ask survivors to disclose their story. We never make them feel forced is because it very much felt that way in everything going on in the Me Too movement. And I remember a friend of mine on Facebook posting something, and I'll never forget it because it just stuck with me. It was well well said. Survivors don't owe you their stories.
1: Absolutely.
0: Full stop. And I think the flip side sometimes of someone, you know, wanting to shut down a conversation. And I think I, we see this more often, at least I see this more often with the really big, splashy news stories. A, a host of these, you know, traumatic events, a lot of people impacted, especially when famous people are impacted. There's just like this voyeuristic energy that at least I feel. Around some of these stories, people are just like, they want the details and this isn't, you know, law and order, like this is someone's life Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: the difficult choice they've had to make about sharing their story for the sake of justice, oftentimes, and then that kind of voyeuristic nature that that's rubbed me the wrong way too, when we approach having those conversations about trauma is the kind of shut down i don't want to talk about that or the like voyeuristic digging too deep wanting more when that's not serving the survivor at all
1: absolutely and and i think what you're talking about often kind of lines up with our tendency to victim blame Uh You know, I think part of why people want the details is they want to understand what happened to you, um, what were all of the steps that you took as part of that, and therefore, can I keep myself safe? I think that's part of it is, you know, well, if I understand, oh, well, you were out pretty late, I would not have gone out that late. That's how I can keep myself safe and know that I won't have what happened to you happen to me. I think that's kind of part of the game that we're playing in our heads when we want those details is we're looking for ways to differentiate our behavior from yours so that we can prove that we are safe from what befell you know, the survivor. But it's such a dangerous and it's a false um, expectation, right? Like obviously- yeah you can't keep yourself safe by avoiding what the person did because none of us are ever safe. I mean, I wish I could say that we were, but the reality is horrible things happen all the time to really, really good, you know, people who deserve only good things. The the, um, negative thing that has impacted this person is not their fault. Your desire to find their action that led to it is communicating that it is their fault and is actually incredibly damaging. So that's another reason I think um, a lot of survivors are loath to share their stories is because they know that it leads to that like, oh yeah, now I see where you messed up and why, you know, that happened to you.
0: I'm going to go back and, and talk a little bit more about, you know, the center centerpiece, I'll call it, of the empathetic workplace. You go into great detail about the laser method, which I think is phenomenal. And again, I think helps really make this book something that can be very directly applied to someone's day-to-day, directly to someone's work. I'd love to hear from you kind of know, how you came up with the laser method, um, and maybe if you'd like to share just like a quick overview of what the laser method is as well.
1: Absolutely. You know, I owe such a debt to all of the victim advocates that I worked with for so many years at the Justice Department. These were incredible men and women who show up every day for people in some of the worst moments of their lives, and they do it again and again and again with really inspiring levels of energy and patience and commitment. And it was them, all of them who taught me how to do this better. And I think partly because it's something that I learned, that's part of why I feel like I am able to explain it. For them, it's, I think, so intuitive that you know, they don't even recognize that they're doing something. It's just, this is what, you know, what happens next. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't always happen next. You are being very deliberate about the ways that you are approaching this person to make them feel more comfortable, to acknowledge what they've shared with you. So it was really in working with them for so many years. And also, frankly, Working with others who didn't have that same skill set, who were also working with survivors, um, where I would get phone calls, you know, from like a, I would get some prosecutor, a big gang prosecutor who's doing all these really horrifying, scary, terrifying cases, who would call me and say, Well, you told me that it was up to me whether or not to offer the plea. Um, And not up to the victim. And I would say, well, yeah, that's true. That's what the law says. Um, Well, now the victim is really mad. And I would say, yeah, well, I can understand that. Will you call him for me? (laughs) (laughs) Say, no, I can't call him for you, but I can help you, you know, prepare for how to have that conversation. You know, people are sometimes going to be really mad or really upset. And my goodness, lots of people have really good reasons for being very, very angry, very sad. Um, I don't, I'm. my job here is not to solve all of the problems for you. It's to make it okay for you to talk, to share what you want to share with me. And so that's really what led to the laser technique. It was that plus seeing um, some of the responses to me too that were disappointing. So the laser technique, very quickly. It's just, these are five things that you should aim to do in a conversation uh, with somebody at work who is coming to you for support. Step one is listen. Um, and this is active listening. So we're not just sitting there quietly. We're trying to show the person that it's okay to talk. So we nod, we encourage them to go on. You can ask open-ended questions. Often what people will do when they have something heavy that they need to share is, or that they want to share, they'll share a little bit of it and then they'll pause and see Does this person actually want to hear what I'm saying. And that gives you an opportunity. If you want to shut down the conversation, you can do it right then. If instead you ask a question that is inviting them to go on. And to the point you made earlier, we're not here to give them the third degree. It's just inviting them if they want to share more. So an open-ended question, what happened next? How did that feel for you? Those kinds of things show them it's okay to keep talking. Watch your body language when we are Hearing something that is difficult or stressful, we can unconsciously adopt a defensive stance, arms crossed. Sometimes we will furrow our brow, which just looks like we're mad, <laughs> which is not great for the person who's trying to talk to us. So um, watch your body language. Um, so listening is step one. And then step two, uh, I think is really important and often missed and that's acknowledging what they have shared with you. So often we've done a great job watching our body language, we're encouraging, we're nodding all the way through and as soon as they finish talking we want to jump to here's who you need to talk to, this is exactly what you need to do, I have great ideas for you and that's all fantastic and maybe worthwhile to share but first they need to know that you heard them. They won't be able to hear anything you say until they feel like they've been heard. So acknowledgement is just a quick statement that shows that we heard them. You can just say, thanks for sharing that, or that sounds really hard. I'm really sorry for everything you've been going through. Just an easy statement that that shows them that we heard. What we want to avoid are statements that either deny or distract from what they've shared. Denial is something like, he probably didn't mean it that way, or um, it's all gonna work out just fine, I know it. <laughs> A distraction is something like, you know, a friend of mine went through something really similar to this and she is absolutely fine today. So let me tell you all about her. And now we're going to be having this whole conversation about the friend instead of just staying there, holding space for this person who has just shared a story with you. So listen and then acknowledge again, which is just thanks for sharing, letting them know you heard them. Um, The third step is share information. And this again comes from the work with victims and that sense of everything feels out of control right now. Knowledge is power. So when we share information with people, we help them regain a sense of control so we can share factual information about the incident if we have that if for instance there's an incident of workplace violence everybody's going to want to know what happened you know who was hurt who was involved who's you know what what actions have been taken since then so so sharing accurate factual information as quickly as you can is helpful but even where you don't have any facts you can still share information you can share process information like how do you file a complaint? Um, When are decisions expected? Those kinds of process points are helpful as well as values information. You know, we take employee safety very seriously, or I take safety very seriously. Values information can be helpful. Um, And I guess a final point on that is don't try to avoid making a statement because you feel like you don't have anything helpful to share. When you don't share information, people just make up their own stories. They gossip, they fret, um, and it is much more helpful to go out with a statement saying, we don't know all of the information yet and we will share it as soon as we have it. Um, Better to do that than to just try to avoid it until you feel like you have something substantive to say. The fourth step is empower, and this is about getting the person to resources that they want and are will find helpful. Um, it's also about boundary setting. A lot of us are fixers. We want to make it better when we see somebody who's in pain. Um, remember that your job is not to fix it, it is to empower them to get to the the right solution for them. So you may think, oh my gosh, this person really needs therapy. Not up to you. And this might not be the right time for them to go to therapy. So don't jump in with your solutions. A great place to start is, how can I help? Or what do you need right now? And then listen. And if they say, gosh, you know, I, I wish I could talk to somebody, then great, maybe you can refer them to Mental health resources that you have at your organization. Maybe what they want is safety planning. So refer them to security personnel. I hope everybody listening is aware of 988, which is our national mental health crisis and suicide prevention line. And I, I also hope people are aware of 211, which is available in most metropolitan areas in the U.S. and connects you to an operator who can refer you to local resources. So maybe what somebody needs is something you're not super well versed in, like elder care or addiction support, um, you can tell them if you call 2-1-1, they can probably connect you to do some local help. So we've done listen, acknowledge, share, empower. Last step is return, which is both literally a return to the person to check in on them later, let them know that you're still um, a source of support for them. And also importantly, it's a return to ourselves because it can take a toll on us supporting others. So we have to recognize that we also need support. So are we engaging in self-care? Are we taking care of ourselves? Are we leaning on others when we need support? Return as a reminder that uh, we need to be taking care of ourselves as much as we're taking care of others.
0: One thing that really stood out to me when I was reading is there's there can be so much weight you put on yourself when you are an HR professional or a leader, and you're working through a conversation, maybe it's an investigation, maybe it's just a challenging conversation, to know everything and to have all of the answers right at your fingertips. And I think so many of us, and I'll include myself in this, make the misstep of waiting until we have all the information to provide information, to provide transparency. And I love the simple. Hey, let people know that you're working to get more information and that you'll provide an update. That's better than kind of let people ruminate on what you're not telling them. And I love the 211 tool because I can think of so many times in my career where someone needed specific help. They were coming to me, I was that safe person in the workplace to provide them with assistance. And it was something I didn't have all the answers for. But two one one to your point, can provide those local resources, can kind of help connect the dots more quickly so you're not, you know, scrambling to find something or providing unhelpful answers. It's this tool that kind of can quickly direct something and, and help the person feel supported without you having to know everything. Of course, none of us know everything.
1: actually to that point stephanie if people are interested i have a a one pager that just lists a a variety of different hotlines um like where would you go to report child abuse um what if somebody is um looking for support around lgbtq issues Mm -hmm. Has all these different numbers and i can send you the link to that to put in the show notes um or if people go to my website which is Um, blackbird-dc.com. It's available there too. Um, It's just something that I think is handy to have around because as you said, like we don't, we, we can't know everything, Um, but to have a little cheat sheet can be helpful.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. We'll definitely include that link in the show notes for sure. Awesome. Well, before we switch to another topic, you know, is there anything else that you wanted to share, you know, about the book, about a more empathetic workplace that you think is important for our listeners to know?
1: Um, you know, I think the, the thing that is my hope is that people will be less afraid of having these conversations. Um, you don't have to get it right every time. Uh, if you care and are are trying to help, that will come across. So don't worry so much that you're going to mess it up. Obviously, try to do your best. Try to show up and be authentic and sincere for the person. But don't shy away from the conversations because you're afraid of messing up. It is better to have the conversation and flub it than to not say anything at all to somebody who is struggling.
0: The other topic I know we wanted to talk about today is something I am just fascinated by. And it is newer concept, at least for me, but I think it is something that comes up so much when we think about, you know, trauma-informed workplaces, workplace engagement how organizations can get things really wrong um, when it comes to relationships, both with their employees, but also their customers in the community. And that's the concept of institutional betrayal. Um, So I would love if you would share kind of with our listeners, you know, what is institutional betrayal? and, And we'll go from there.
1: Absolutely. Institutional betrayal, I think, is so important to understand because I think sometimes people think, well, why does a workplace have to be trauma-informed? That workplaces seem like they're separate from uh, the kinds of mental health supports and, and wellness things that would come up when we're talking about trauma. But institutional betrayal, I think, helps explain why it's so important that workplaces understand trauma and do their best to prevent and mitigate trauma. Institutional betrayal is a psychological concept that comes out of the work of Dr. Jennifer Fried. That's F R E Y D. She was formerly with the University of Oregon. The way that the concept was explained to me um, by uh, Dr. Anna Prince, who studied under Dr. Fried, is how I, I will explain it to you, which is with a series of hypotheticals. So, first, imagine a child who has been abused by a parent. There may be physical injury from that abuse, say bruising, but then on top of that physical injury, there's a psychological injury from the fact that the child was hurt by someone that he looks to for support and protection. That psychological injury can last far longer than the physical one. So long after the bruises have faded, that psychological injury remains. Next, imagine a student on a college campus who is sexually assaulted and she goes to her campus Title IX coordinator to report the assault. And instead of being supportive, the Title IX coordinator minimizes what she went through or implies that it was her fault. Obviously, she will have the underlying injury from the assault. But now on top of that, she has a second injury um, from the institution that she aligns herself with and looks to for support and protection. The institution of the university and the person of this Title IX coordinator has betrayed her, her trust relationship with them. And according to Dr. Fried's work, that is a second cognizable injury. And it can be long-lasting, both in terms of individual healing and in terms of their relationship with the institution. And so what Dr. Fried's work has shown is that when we align ourselves with institutions, because it is our government, it is our faith community, it is our workplace, we look to those institutions to support us in our difficult times. And when they either take actions that we fear will hurt us or people that we care about, or when they fail to act, when action would be warranted, that is an injury that she terms an institutional betrayal. And it can have a really devastating and lasting impact on individuals and ultimately on the institution as a whole. And so I think it's so important for people who work in any kind of institution to understand any organization as an HR professional, you are the face of that organization. And so when somebody comes to you to report bias or harassment, understand that you are speaking for the organization as a whole and actions that you take that are seen as um, damaging to the individual, minimizing what they went through, a failure to follow procedures as they've been set out, lack of transparency, all those things can, can create a second injury on top of the first. And so it's, this is why I think that workplaces in particular have to be very cognizant of the actions they are taking, in particular with respect to employees and customers, clients in trauma.
0: Absolutely. I I mean, and I think of it as, you know, someone who's existed in workplaces, corporate America, you know, for the better part of 15 years. And I think what's so tough for folks to wrap their heads around is one individual in a position of power or authority in relation to the person who's disclosing a complaint, a traumatic experience, you know, something that hasn't gone right, that one bad response or reaction or lack of follow through in the correct way can create institutional betrayal. So when organizations don't invest in providing the right tools and training and supports for their leaders, for their HR teams, for their frontline managers, the likelihood of that institutional betrayal happening is far greater in my mind because they do not, they, they're not equipped to move forward in the right way. And, you know, managers have a t- tough gig right now. I think they're kind of squeezed between senior leadership, executive leadership, and, you know, their direct reports without a Without a lot of tools, resources, and trainings, I think trauma-informed workplaces are really a beautiful solution to this issue because it addresses getting individuals those supports, making sure they're supporting others in the right way, all at the same time still focusing on the objective of performance of our jobs, performance of workplace goals. So I I think it's so key When you hear a term like institutional betrayal, you think about bad acts from a CEO, you know, what's Elon Musk doing? (laughs) Or, you know, what's this big executive doing? But institutional betrayal can and does occur at like every level of the organization. And I think that's where folks can really underestimate its potential impact or risk overall to their business.
1: Absolutely, and I think the flip side of the coin is also true, which is when we do it well, we build psychological safety and trust, and all of the benefits that come from those. I mean, if you think back on your own life when you have struggled, maybe had a hard time in your life, and you think about who showed up well for you then, um, didn't run away, didn't minimize, just listened and and supported you those are the people like you will do anything for them. (laughs) I remember talking to a friend who um, she talked about her boss um, years ago. This was like a decade ago, who was so adamantly supportive when her own father was dying. Um, And, he was such a source of comfort for her, both professionally and personally during that time. And she hasn't worked with him in many years. And I said, well, how do you feel about him now? And she said, oh, I would walk through fire for that man, (laughs) you know, forever, because of the way that he showed up for her when she was at a really difficult time in her life. And so as a manager, or an HR professional, really anybody in an organization, um, you don't have to You don't have to become their therapist. You don't have to kind of solve their problem. Just being willing to sit with them, listen, provide support, and try to help them get what they need and want in that moment. It's um, incredibly powerful and transformative, both on the individual healing level and also on your relationship of trust with them. And then ultimately, finally, on your organization's success.
0: And I mean, as you're describing that, I'm thinking... Personally, of leaders, I would still walk through fire for. And exactly what you're talking about. Those are the people who, you know, always showed up for me, supported and cared about me, told me hard truths. Um, and again, I would still, I would, you know, jump into combat for them. And it's so interesting. A common complaint I hear, I've heard my whole career, is how employees aren't loyal. Anymore, and how people, you know, job hop and go to different organizations. And we just talked about an amazing way to foster real commitment, real loyalty. And it's to those real, genuine relationships that trauma informed workplaces really can help facilitate.
1: Completely, completely agree.
0: Well, I know we've taken up plenty of your time. Want to make sure that if there is anything you wanted to share about the work that you do with Blackbird, I would love for you to share a little bit about the services you offer um, for our listeners. Well,
1: oh, that's very nice. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I do training and consulting. So I train organizations on um, how to have these conversations as well as how to create the culture where these conversations can happen in the first place, and then also importantly on how we um, engage in self-care and resilience as we are creating trauma-informed workplaces. Uh, The consulting side is helping organizations set up systems and navigate their way through uh, sometimes really difficult circumstances. If anybody is interested in finding out more about me, you can find it out through my website, blackbird-dc.com. I'm also on all of the social medias. It's at Empathetic Workplace on both uh, Facebook and Instagram. I'm really active on LinkedIn. And one of my favorite ways of staying in touch is through text messages. I send out a text message every Thursday. Um, It's just a free message that goes out to anybody who opts in. And um, I often share quotes or tips on self-care or articles, um, all in this vein of empathy and leadership, being trauma-informed, being resilient. So anybody who wants to opt into that, if you just text um, 833-975-1945, text the word Blackbird to 833-975-1945, you can opt into that list. And it's um, very easy. You can just opt out anytime if you're not interested after joining.
0: You won't want to though, because the texts are awesome. And who doesn't need a little Thursday pick me up? I know I look (laughs) forward to them. They're, they're awesome. Well, Catherine, this has been such an amazing conversation. I look up to you so much and I'm so grateful for all the amazing work you've done. Um, including the,
1: likewise,
0: (laughs) (laughs) including the amazing, the empathetic workplace book, um, Again, I'm. I can't stop plugging this book. I probably, you know, drive all my my listeners wild with this. But it is. It really is that good. Just want to say again, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Um, but make sure if you're listening to check out Catherine's amazing work. Follow her on the socials and sign up for. I'm serious. Sign up for the text messages. They are really good. And. Until then, you know, thank you for listening and on our podcast and until next time, be well. Thank you so much.